thanks for joining us on Back On Air, the podcast for operators who have compliance on their mind and road transport at the heart of their business. This podcast is a recording of our live fortnightly webinar held every other Friday. So if you like what you hear and fancy joining the live event where you can ask questions and vote on our interactive polls, just register through the link in the show notes. The content of this podcast is correct at the time of broadcasting, but it isn't meant to be specific legal advice. If, however, you need advice, we recommend that you take proper legal advice for your individual situation. Finally, please do leave us a review and, of course, details of any areas you would like us to cover in future episodes. We do read them and it helps others find our podcast. Enjoy! Well, good afternoon. Welcome back and thank you for joining us this Friday lunchtime. My name is Julia Davis and I'll be facilitating the tech for today's webinar session and also answering, uh, weaving in the questions that you might ask. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. To the right hand corner of your screen, you'll notice that there's a very small control panel and it's there that you can ask, type in any questions to the panel and engage in some of the discussion. We really welcome your interaction because uh, it makes it interesting for us and uh, it certainly keeps me on my toes uh, dealing with the flurry of questions that are coming through. Now, today, it's quite an exciting session for us because for the first time in a long time, we have a guest speaker. So we're joined by Kate Walker. She's the Chief Executive of the Diabetes Safety Organization. And the second exciting news is that we've actually got Jonathan Backhouse in the house. Jonathan. It's been a while, hasn't it? It certainly has, and um, I was hoping to get away with it, but here I am with the uh, He's there with his cravat on this warm day, so we'll give Jonathan a very warm welcome. And I think you've had a birthday this week as well. Yes, I'm 27 and a half. Being an identical twin, obviously I share my age with my twin brother, so I'm 27 and a half on Wednesday this week. There we are. So over to you, and I'll uh, deal with the tech. All right, thank you very much, Julia. Did you notice Julia's voice there, everybody? That isn't how she sounds normally, but um, still very good. (laughs) All right, so we'll move on now. Um, Yes, we've got a guest speaker, and she's not on next. She's eagerly awaiting her opportunity. But first, we've got breaking news with an old star that we've had on many, many times, who's on almost every week now, and that's Laura. Uh, good morning or afternoon, Laura, depending on whether you've had your lunch. Morning, Jonathan. I've certainly not had my lunch yet, and I'm sure you haven't either. <laughs> yeah, breaking news. We've got three different um, breaking news topics in the regulatory arena this week, all of which are very different. Um, so first of all, I'm going to start with some changes in relation to transport managers. And you might remember a few weeks ago, we talked about changes whereby the minimum disqualification period for transport managers of 12 months have been introduced. Well, other changes brought in as part of that same set of amendments have resulted in what actually is going to be something quite uh, significant and fundamental in terms of the number of transport managers you might need on your operator's license in order to satisfy the requirement of professional competence. And um, essentially, um, what's happened is the requirement for you to have a named transport manager has been replaced with the requirement for you to designate a suitable number of transport managers and what is suitable is a decision for the traffic commissioners based on what is proportionate in comparison to your fleet size so um, that's the change ultimately we're going to look at it in far more detail in in one of the webinars to come in the next couple of weeks 
um, and what that might look like in practice for you. But there's already indications that the traffic commissioners are looking at this and certainly operating in accordance with this when they're making decisions. Um, the changes per se only apply to the goods vehicle sector, interestingly. Um, there seems to have been a distinction drawn between the goods and the PSV sector. Um, but we are already seeing that this sort of approach is being taken in respect of PSV operators as well. So perhaps just a, a warning to address your mind to the number of vehicles versus number of transport managers and as a, a very basic and broad rule of thumb, that 50 vehicles per one transport manager approach that's taken in relation to external transport managers should perhaps be your benchmark when you're looking at your transport manager decisions. Um, but as I say, we'll talk about it in far more detail um, and look at some specific scenarios perhaps in the coming weeks. OK, secondly, then, um, I think it's paper application forms. And you'll have heard us talk about the VOL system and encourage you to move on to the VOL system. Um, numerous times over the last few years. That's now ever more important because um, the Traffic Commissioner's Office have issued a, um, an update, a notification this week that confirms paper applications for major changes will end from the 1st of August. So what does this mean? It means if you're making applications for new licenses or variations to your operator's licenses, you will now have to make those applications via the VOL system. If you seek to use paper forms, your application will be returned to you undealt with and you'll have to start the process again. So inevitably there are going to be delays. Um, so if you aren't already registered for the VOL system, do make sure you take that step. And also bear in mind who is using the VOL account within your business. Each individual needs their own login credentials and you shouldn't be sharing those usernames and passwords across different individuals within the business. And then thirdly and finally from me for now, um, we've had um, reported in the news last week um, a really, really significant decision um, in terms of Crown Court proceedings brought against an operator um, and specifically against the operator, its directors and transport manager that's resulted in significant prison sentences and significant fine um, for offences relating to corporate manslaughter, gross negligence manslaughter and health and safety breaches. And again, this is something that we're going to talk about in far more detail in the coming weeks. But just to give you a flavour of the case, this is a really tragic case that dated back to just before Christmas in 2016, where two um, workers drowned in, um, a, in toxic semi-liquid pig feed in a tanker. Um, I think they were attempting to clean the tanker. One of them got into difficulty and the second member of staff went to assist them. And unfortunately, both individuals um, drowned. The company was prosecuted for two offences of corporate manslaughter. One of the directors was prosecuted for corporate manslaughter offences. The transport manager was prosecuted for gross negligence, manslaughter and health and safety breaches, um, specifically um, not um, taking reasonable care for the health and safety of others. And the second director was prosecuted for health and safety offences on the basis that the um, deaths were attributable to his consent or committed with um, attributable to his negligence. So significant offences, um, a deeply tragic incident, and ultimately the Crown Court trial, which lasted six weeks, concluded with convictions of the company for two offences of corporate manslaughter and a two million pound fine was imposed. The first director was convicted of two offences of corporate manslaughter and is currently serving a 13-year prison sentence. 
The second director was convicted of that health and safety breach under Section 2 of the Health and Safety at Work Act um, and is serving a 20-month prison sentence. And the transport manager was actually found not guilty of two offences of gross negligence manslaughter, but was convicted of the health and safety breach on the basis he failed to take reasonable care for the health and safety of the two individuals that lost their lives. And he received a suspended prison sentence. So he was sentenced to one year in prison, but that's been suspended for two years. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, firstly, it's a really, really clear reminder of the need for you as transport managers and directors to focus your mind on health and safety. Um, Jonathan said on numerous occasions on the webinars and in other forums about the focus that the health and safety executive now have on the transport sector, and that's only going to increase in light of cases like this. And your obligations under the health and safety legislation are very much part and parcel of your role. Um, so you need to be looking at the role you have in those processes, those policies and procedures, um, and the steps that you're taking as a business to um, ensure the health, safety and welfare of everybody affected by your business's activities, because ultimately it's the directors and transport managers that will carry the can in the way that these individuals have here where things go wrong. And at the very least, you will be subject to the type of investigation and prosecution risk that these individuals have faced, even if in the end you are not convicted. But there's always going to be that risk in court proceedings, especially where they're looking at offences where it's whether you've done all that was reasonably practicable, it's quite a high bar. Um, so we're going to focus on this in a lot more detail in the weeks to come, but I'm just raising it because it's something that has been in the news throughout the last week. You may well have read and seen it, um, and, and it's certainly something that you need to be alive to and, and use as a, a tool to focus your mind on those obligations you have. Yeah, very much so. I think actually the... Um role of the transport manager in those proceedings who I don't think was actually on the license at the time of the incident just highlights um, that it's it's going to affect the transport managers as well as the owners of the business and the senior management team and uh, I think we will when we get more information about that case uh, do a, um, a session that fully breaks it down in one of these webinars so we can discuss with you what your views are on it as well. Now, Julia said, thank you very much, Laura. Julia said at the beginning um, that um, she would like questions and comments. And I know you're always very good for that, so please don't hesitate to send those in because we've now got a lady who's about to speak, um, who's Kate Walker. She's the CEO of the Diabetic Safety Org, oh, sorry, Diabetes Safety Organization. My reading skills being at their usual level there. Protecting people and businesses against diabetic risk and liability. And I think that's really important. I think all of us in business will have at least one person in our organisations who may be affected by diabetes. And how we deal with that, whether we deal with that, I think is really important. And she's also a strong advocate for their One Less campaign, which actually sounds quite interesting for me. I'd like to know more about that. So without further ado... Hopefully, yeah, there you go. Well, good morning uh, or afternoon, Kate. Um, far away, over to you. Uh, thank you, and thank you for having me today and for all uh, joining in to hear more about diabetes. We're going to have a whistle-stop tour of diabetes because I'm on the clock of how much we can get in. And I think really we want to cover what diabetes is, then why is it a risk in your workplace and what can be done around that. So just to get a handle on the size of the problem, we know there's 4.6 million people in the UK currently with diabetes. Um, a million of those are undiagnosed and that will matter 
That number is rising um, through COVID because 700 people a day are diagnosed with diabetes. And this obviously hasn't been happening for the last couple of years. So we need to consider what are we looking at and what are we looking at in work? There's a further 12.3 million people at risk of type 2 diabetes. And this is a number we need to consider, particularly in this industry, when we look at the average age, and I believe it's around 57. And those numbers, therefore, might be higher as an average across this industry. Um, diabetes is a leading cause of blindness in the working population. There's 170 amputations a week in the UK. And again, this number's rising because of COVID. You know, GPs can't see people's feet over cameras. And we've got to consider, are we checking our feet? And if people have diabetes, that that's being done. And gentlemen, I'm sorry, but 75% of men who have diabetes suffer from erectile dysfunction, a topic that often gets the conversation going when we're face to face. But something as well that also encourages people to take action around their health. In terms of the industry, um, looking at data models that we use, um, if we took for haulage and logistics as about 2.5 million people, we can start to see here the sorts of numbers we're talking about who have diabetes, so 208,000, um, and 42,000 of these wouldn't know they have the condition. And we can see that that risk factor of, um, you know, just short of a million people potentially with pre-diabetes. These are staggering numbers when we think about the implication shortly of what this condition can do um, and why that affects. So as an average for your workforce, we're looking about one in 12 is the national prevalence of diabetes currently in the UK. Uh, we don't have data. It's really hard. It's very much a hidden condition. It's hidden because people either don't know or don't come forward. And do you as an organisation and organisations as a whole don't necessarily monitor diabetes. So we don't know whether there's a higher prevalence across this industry and it's something that we would love to find out more about. Next slide. So I think really to hang the rest of this conversation and then the scenarios on, it's really important we understand what diabetes is. And we were just uh, before this just discussing how important actually it is for employers to understand the difference in diabetes so that the right conversations can be had and then the right understanding of appropriate adjustments and regulations and what that implies can follow. So in its simplest form, um, diabetes is a sugar intolerance. Your body can no longer cope with sugar. Um, so what we need to understand is what, what's happening in the body. So if, if you're sat there now with your coffee and you've had your pudding, your blood sugars will naturally rise. We don't have any sweet desserts in here. I think they've stopped them because I was coming. But let's <laughs> imagine that we just had one. I've had a cookie. My blood sugars naturally rise. Now, I don't have diabetes, so my body will pull the blood sugars back down safely and keep me nice and safe. If I had diabetes, depending which one, which we'll touch on, if my, I take my cookie afterwards, my blood sugars stay high if I can't pull that sugar. If I've got a sugar intolerance, my blood sugars stay high. And we can say, well, why does that matter? Well, if we took a glass of sugary water and dropped a dull coin in, you know, if we were live, I'd ask you what would happen. Normally, no one answers me. So... What would happen is that sugar, the coin will turn shiny. The sugar will clean that coin. Now, if we think, well, what happens inside us? If our blood sugars stay high, these are our undiagnosed. If our blood sugars stay high, it starts to rot us. We're not a robot. We don't shine. It doesn't clean us. It starts to rot behind the eyes. For you gentlemen, we know where that's going. The feet and starts to damage us internally, which is the leading cause of all of these complexities that happen. 
So for undiagnosed, and you men are absolute tinkers for not rocking up to GPs, we start to see the condition doing its damage and you're presenting with complications. We also then have that problem, what about if we can't feel our feet and all that comes with driving shortly? So if we can see what would happen undiagnosed, if you have the right medication, we can start to, to do other stuff. I'm going to just finish this and then I'll come. I think there might be a question. Oh, no, back. There isn't. I'm just wondering if you want me to move on, Kate. Until no, one last. Oh, me a second. Oh, OK, sorry. No, not so. I'm getting ahead. Um, so here we can see there's two types of diabetes. So there's an autoimmune disease. That's type one. So for type ones, and that's only 5% of the 4.6 million. So of the type ones, their body produces no insulin and they have to inject. You'll often see the sensors on arms these days that help people to monitor their condition. And it's very helpful. Type ones get very frustrated when they're branded with type two. So there's a really important understanding here. And I think for those, they have to inject. And there are regulations which we'll touch on later around testing when you're on insulin. Then for type twos, I think the easiest analogy, um, so I live down in Birmingham, I've driven up here today, somewhere up north about two hours, I'm not great direction, sat now got me here. So let's imagine I drove here in first gear and I got to got, got up here and no one would be surprised if my car engine was smoking. So if we imagine that that's happened and I turn around and I remember to change gear on the way home, back down the M6, the car park that is, change gear, and I get home and my car's fine because I've remembered this time. If, however, I keep driving in first gear, at some point that engine will break. So if we imagine your body being the engine, so pre-diabetes is the warning light or the smoke, if I'm driving, that says your body isn't happy. Something is not working as well as it should. So if we go and do something about it, you get tested, you make adjustments. Hopefully, and for many, that will reverse the condition. If, however, we ignore the signs and symptoms, which we've had a flash of and we'll go to in a moment, if we ignore those conditions and symptoms, the body starts to work less. And so for type two, it's progressive. And the more we hammer that body for lots of reasons, the body can then no longer do what it needs to do. And we fall into type two diabetes. And again, it's progressive and may end up on insulin. And that's really important. It's not type one, it's type two on insulin when the body needs more support. I do think we briefly mentioned that diabetes is very hidden. These symptoms are very easy to put down. A busy week, of course, I'm tired. I've worked hard. I went out last night and had a few beers, so of course I'm thirsty. Problem is, a lot of the symptoms are easy to push away, and until they're bad enough, people don't always present. And we need to start getting to ensure that that over a million people get diagnosed, and we can take better management and prevent that damage to the body. To say that that kind of is a whistle-stop tour of diabetes, it's then what, what are the risks and what does that do and how does that impact? So really there's two areas we need to think about. Those who are on insulin, type 1s and type 2s, and that's the risk of a hypo, that's a low blood sugar. So the medicine yanks the blood sugars down to a really low level and can cause people to act drunk or black out. And you can see here the implications of that. So we know 5% are definitely on insulin because they're type 1s. The data suggests around another 17% of type 2s are on insulin. So there is a real daily risk from a hypo for those people. And then for those who are undiagnosed, the risk is um, the fact that they're high. So, you know, Christmas morning, I've got a kid. We've eaten way too much sugar at 7 o'clock. I've been up since 4. I'm trying to stay awake. My sugar levels are sky high. We aren't concentrating enough. We're not quite with it. 
that's undiagnosed and they're living in that place all the time. So lack of concentration and awareness and sensation in feet can go and people, well, I'd know. But not if it was gradual. We would not know because we've got used to what it feels like. So there's risks either side of that spectrum on diabetes. Um, and just a quick stat on the likelihood of a hypo. We've done lots of modelling on this because there's not much data out there. And in a company of a thousand, it's perceived there'd be approximately three to six severe hypos requiring assistance from someone else every month. So these are serious numbers that we need to consider uh, when we're looking at the size of organisations and the risk, particularly when we're talking across this industry. So the key three areas we're going to touch on in some of the scenarios shortly um, that relate from diabetes into the workplace is the safety risks, the risk of losing sensation feet if you have too high, or the safety side from a hypo and the implications that that can do. The compliance risks around health and safety and what's reasonable and practicable. And um, whether is, is it, an, is it, does it fall under the Equality Act? Is it something that forces a disability or not? And then DVLA regulations of whether people are testing or not, what tests need to be taken. Um, and then the productivity, which we'll have another slide on shortly. Um, so on this slide, it was more just to touch on the point that we need assistance sometimes when we're looking at this. If someone wants to have a hypo, often it's reported by other people. We don't know if we're going down. That mid-morning slump, you know, when we all had a good breakfast mid-morning or mid-afternoon as we're heading that direction, we've had sugar and we start to feel a bit low and not quite with it. Our, low, our blood sugars have gone down, not dangerously, but if that then dropped even further, you can start to imagine you're not aware it's happening. And we have lots of reports from other people and organisations where they have found somebody unwell. And if this is a single driver, what are we doing about that? And are we assisting? And just touching on hypos, um, we need to be very mindful that there's not enough sugar now in something like as leukosate to pull someone out. So as sugar taxes are happening, there's some good stuff, I suppose. And we look at health, but we've got to ensure there's the right level of sugar around to pull someone out. And you get hypo gels or hypo boxes. I personally don't recommend jelly babies because I certainly would eat mine on the way home tonight. Um, so I think about the gels don't taste nice. So something like that, is the driver got it, is the right stuff in place for that individual to ensure that they are safe and have all that they need. And we must remember for some people, there's sharps as well, either injecting their insulin or doing their tests and have they got the appropriate place to put those sharps for you as an employer to be meet, meeting those needs. And then on productivity, as our whistle-stop tour, on time, is um, <laughs> kind of what does that mean to you? I think there's all the other points we've talked at. And then when we look at productivity, we all know what it's like. We'll pretend we've never had hangovers, but let's say we have and how we don't feel great the next day. Hypos have that sort of implication, whether it's severe or non-severe. And it's, the data is showing that 65 hours, excuse me, 65 hours a week are lost in a company of a thousand from the sort of non-severe hypos and the implications as you can see um, from that productivity. So I think we need to really look at all aspects to ensure you can get the most from our staff, but also we can keep the roads and, and employers and employees safe. And then finally, I think from my point of view, really touching on kind of ensuring workplaces are diabetes safe, that we are understanding the condition that people are willing to come forward because they know they're not going to lose their job and appropriate things can be put in place will really help bring all of this forward. 
and we've touched on the one less challenge. So from the doom and gloom of diabetes to the solutions that you could do um, today would be looking at how do we improve our health. If we had one less sugar in six coffees a day or tea, um, it would be a kilogram less a month. So 12 bags of sugar a year, which would improve your health. You know, and if we looked at that with crisps or with biscuits, now we did discuss earlier, that's not adding one to take one away. You really have got to consider <laughs> just having one left. You know, maybe you're a fan of a pint tonight, whether that's gin or wine or beer, I'm not here to judge, but let's say it's a pint less or a glass less. Over a month would make a significant difference. And it's challenging you today. If you did take nothing else away, what could you do for your own health and have one less of? Yeah, I think that's a really great um policy actually I mean, to try and find something to do one less of maybe a day's work would be good a month does that make any difference to help <laughs> yeah well there you go you see that could help me um, uh, anyway thank you very much Kate it's really informative and actually really interesting uh, I think we've got just a couple of polls just to try and get people uh, interested first of all do you monitor do you monitor or manage anybody in your workforce who has diabetes just um, if you wouldn't mind just taking part in this as, as you're sitting at your desks eating one less chocolate um, uh, and um, drinking one less fizzy drink uh, I can tell you have had a number of questions in as well Kate but I think actually the questions that we've had we will be touching on them in the scenarios things like if you do suspect somebody in your workforce has diabetes then what are the steps that they can do how do they address it but I think we'll, we'll cover that in, in some of those scenarios. We will also give you all a link while you're just answering this poll um, uh, to uh, Kate's um, organisation's website so uh, you can uh, get more research ask for more information and uh, maybe uh, seek help and assistance that will help you manage this more carefully. Okay, so that's interesting, isn't it? So 75% of the listeners don't monitor or manage anybody in their workforce. So we have a workforce here of 60, and we know we did have two insulin-dependent diabetics. We've now only got one insulin-dependent diabetic. And I have to say, we don't manage her. She's very capable of managing her own uh, 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 condition but I suspect if she was doing a lot of driving for us then we would be much more interested because she'd be remote and therefore we wouldn't be able to observe changes in behavior um, so that, but that's quite an interesting outcome isn't it is that fairly typical would you say yeah I think it is it's very hidden it's hidden in the population it's hidden across organizations and we find it really challenging to help organizations we know it's one in 12 so I'm surprised we see such different statistics because we would anticipate those numbers to be higher but we know either people are undiagnosed or don't want to come forward so it's a real challenge to help people find that safety aspect of it yeah and I'm pretty confident nearly all of you will have had or will have somebody in your organization who is either type 1 or more likely type 2 diabetic, um, uh, either controlling by diet or some other method. Um, okay, so we've now got some scenarios to talk through, and Heather, um, who is a regular on these slots, is about to join us. Good morning, Heather, or afternoon. Um, and also, I think Laura's going to pop back on the screen in a moment. Okay, so I'll, I'll, we'll start off with the, uh, I've just got to get rid of some of my screen, I can't read it. We'll start off with the first scenario. Bob's an HGV driver and has been working for Big Ben Logistics. I hope there isn't a company out there, certainly we're not seeking to represent them by that name for 10 years. He hasn't been looking after himself um, and as well, he used, 
as well as he used to. So he hasn't been looking after himself. I could do to read this in advance, couldn't I? He hasn't been looking after himself <laughs> as well as he used to and hadn't been feeling well for a few months. So he went to his GP. His GP, his GP diagnosed him as having type 2 diabetes. Bob has to take tablets for his diabetes now and is trying to make lifestyle changes to manage it. He came into work today and told you about what's been happening. So as a starting point, what do you need to do? Well, I mean, this is an employer-employee relationship as a starting point, isn't it, Heather? So what, what are you immediately thinking here? Um, well, first of all, well done, Bob, for coming forward and actually volunteering the information, because as we know, um, many don't. Um, so first thing you would immediately be doing is sitting down and having a discussion with him and finding out as much information as you can um, about what he's been discussing with his GP about his diagnosis and the treatment for that. Um, it's likely he may have been off sick um, in the few months leading up to this um, if he's not been feeling well. Um, but I'm not a medical expert, no doubt the manager that's speaking to him isn't a medical expert. Um, so what we need to assess is how this affects um, Bob's ability to, to do the job that he's doing. Um, if he is, and I've just learnt this from, from Kate um, this morning, he doesn't necessarily have to stop driving, um, but we need to make a, an assessment as to his fitness. So the first thing you'd be looking at is perhaps an occupational health referral to understand how, if at all, um, it's going to affect him providing he's keeping up with his treatment. Um, Kate in her slides earlier mentioned um, the Equality Act um, and the obligation to make reasonable, adjust reasonable adjustments. Um, it can be a qualifying disability, um, diabetes in some circumstances, um, and that's what we'd probably be seeking advice as well through occupational health um, and whether that legal obligation kicks in. Um, but regardless really of whether it does or it doesn't, we'd want to be speaking to Bob about how we can help him and what support we can put in place to help him manage his diabetes at work. Um, and really that's down to um, to the managers with a combination of, of occupational um, health input. Um, we'd want to obviously get Bob to fill in a medical declaration so that that can be kept on his personnel file um, for future um, reference, new managers coming in. It's there, it's documented, everybody's, everybody's aware of it. Bob actually told his uh, employer in this particular scenario. Uh, that's not always the case, is it, Kate? No, it's not. And we've got to remember, we've got two problems here. We've got the undiagnosed who don't even know. And one of the biggest challenges do they want to find out because of the risks that come with it? And then secondly, as you rightly say, Jonathan, they don't want to always come forward because they don't understand enough. And we've worked on the ground a lot and we find that if we educate or inform or share about the condition and they understand that the company can make reasonable adjustments and most of the time it won't prevent them from driving particularly early diagnosed because of the they can do it through lifestyle actually we could get the workplace safer and make it better because then they know that it's a safe place it's the unknown for many people that's a challenge yeah and, and fear of losing jobs and, and all those things um, and Heather so 
Uh, would it be good advice uh, to, for example, and are you allowed to put a condition in the employment contract to uh, oblige them to inform their employer of uh, a change in medical status or condition? Yes, um, I'd always recommend um, a couple of clauses in the employment contract. The first one is obviously the job when they start is conditional upon them satisfying medical checks uh, that we deem necessary. Secondly, that they fill in a either annual or quarterly, um, two yearly, however you do it internally, um, an contractual obligation to complete a medical declaration to say that they've got no um, health issues and nothing's changed in the last six months, 12, 12 months, but also on top of that, that they are obliged to or required to contact you um, at any point should their health position change just like Bob's done in this um, scenario. Um, and the third one, uh, which is always useful, is a contractual obligation to allow you to refer them to a medical specialist um, or company doctor um, should the need arise. Um, now, obviously, there are issues with consent because they have to consent to a referral to occupational health. Um, and it's their right to refuse that consent. Um, we can then deal with them by way of breach of contract if they um, if they aren't cooperating at the time. Okay, and Helen, so those are the three key things. So I do have a question here then in terms of data. So information about whether an employee has diabetes or not is sensitive personal data. So would you recommend collecting such data which you have covered? But if so, how should the data be stored in a compliant way? Well, it needs to be stored securely in line with your um, privacy policies, it should only be accessed by those that need access to it. So it's not open to the wider workforce. Um, it needs to be kept confidential, usually uh, with HR managers or um, operations if you don't have a separate HR manager, but that needs to be stored with minimal um, exposure to anybody else. Okay. Laura, who's sitting very patiently there, might there be some notification obligations here, Laura, for the DVLA? Possibly, yeah. I mean, Heather's talked about the fact that people might not volunteer this information necessarily because they're frightened of the impact it would have on their ability to drive. Well, there's two levels to that. One, do you need to notify the DVLA of the condition? And two, does that notification prevent you from driving? Well, um, you do need to notify the DVLA if you're managing your diabetes through anything other than lifestyle and diet. So if there's any form of tablets, um, as is the case here with Bob, or if you're insulin dependent and you do need to notify um, the DVLA. You don't necessarily, in Bob's case, need to stop driving from a DVLA perspective. That's separate to anything that you might decide yourselves following the advice Heather's suggested you follow. Um, if you're insulin dependent though, you do have to stop driving, um, make the notification and DVLA will then tell you when you can restart driving. So there's a distinction in the legal position from DVLA's perspective, dependent on how you manage your diabetes. Okay, let's move on to the second scenario. So I have to say, Laura, there we have somebody say, can we have a whip around and get poor Laura a new webcam? I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I nearly said Laura's in black and white again. I know, James Backhouse has been promising to sort my webcam out for months. And, I'm still and it's a fairly new laptop as well, it's isn't it? it? So, uh, yeah. so there we are. Yeah. Um, yes, we will have the whip round. I look like I'm in the broom cupboard. She looks better in black and white, to be honest. <laughs> the poor relation, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Cinderella. <laughs> okay. 
So Claire is a coach driver um, for Service with a Smile Coaches. Again, I hope there isn't such a service out there. If there is, we're not trying to interpret or, uh, or pretend to be there. Claire has been off work quite a bit recently with various coughs, colds and other infections. There have been a number of complaints about Claire's demeanour when talking, <laughs> when taking people on tours. Uh, I think some of you might think that's quite common anyway. Um, she has been quite grumpy and seems tired, is drinking lots of water and has to stop for comfort breaks more often than usual. She's not as focused as usual. She's also lost a lot of weight recently, but hasn't mentioned being on a diet. You're worried something's going on with her that she isn't sharing. So we'll start here with Kate. Um, what do those symptoms look like? Yeah, it's, it's too easy, isn't it? I think it's this, it's this hard one. If you know too much, is that where we're going to jump to? It would certainly flag to me, is there a question to be asked? Is there something where we can start that initial conversation and ask around health, around how she's doing, and start the conversation? Again, understanding diabetes, this is something that would certainly, for me, flag concern and initially make me want to have a conversation with Claire. Yeah, I mean, the right comment here is, don't start being a doctor. Yeah. You can't start saying, hey, Claire, you've got diabetes. Um, but there's enough going wrong here that you've got some signs that you need to act on. So what are you going to do, Heather? I mean, you can't just say, hey, Claire, you've got diabetes. You're dismissed, can you? You can't. And it's about uh, having a sensitive conversation with, with Claire. I mean, it does say she's been off sick um, or off work quite a bit recently. But she may be ignoring the symptoms or the red flags that you're spotting um, and trying to muddle through with work regardless. Um, so it's about taking her to one side um, and having a discussion about your concerns um, and either perhaps encouraging her to go and speak to her own GP or making the suggestion that we can refer her to our own company doctor and um, if if necessary um, if we are concerned about leaving her on the road driving out on tour um, because of the red flags that we've spotted we may have to make a decision as to whether we ask her to stay away from work um, or just take a period of rest while we have her assessed um, to, to, keep, to keep her safe um, obviously there's a pay implication for that because if we are effectively medically suspending her um, then we will have to pay her um, but it's about opening up that channel of communication in the first instance and then and having that open dialogue with her but the main thing is that we seek some medical advice don't be uh, as Jonathan said diagnosing her yourself and and coming up with uh, <laughs> <laughs> your own conclusions yeah. maybe a, maybe a, a solution as well you know yeah I mean, uh, the main thing is to act isn't it um the the other thing in there is sometimes we often deal with um operators that will come to us and say we've had a number of complaints about this driver and um, you know we want to start disciplining if, they, if you've got a driver that's been with you a long time um, and the sort of personality or the approach to things changes, it's not necessarily always a disciplinary issue. Just to make that point, you all, you've got to look at the wider picture um, and the changes that 
the red flags that you should be spotting and perhaps look at it from a medical perspective uh, because I could see some treating that as a, as a misconduct issue, regular, regular breaks, uh, complaints coming in. And also listening to other colleagues if they're coming to your door and you know it might be a few people who are saying things because sometimes uh, when you're all busy you, and, and also you know Claire is driving perhaps on her own uh, with without others there it's just the passengers it's a case of how you pick up these things isn't it so yeah and that is very important and I think we've all done a number of cases over the years where driver behavior has changed and companies sometimes have spotted it but often haven't um, but could have spotted it if they'd actually been listening or observing and, and accidents have happened as a result of these sorts of uh, scenarios and, and obviously uh, often they're tragic accidents what i would say also here is um, the, the the problem you've got is that Think of it like this, you're about to go on holiday, you're about to get on your aircraft and you discover that the pilot is suffering from all these symptoms. Would you be happy with your pilot flying that plane? And there's no difference to that and your lorry driver or your coach and bus driver getting behind the wheel. So the, the short answer is you've got to, if you really are concerned and the concerns are realistic and genuine, the starting point is take them off the road suspend them from that you might be able to give them other duties in the workplace uh, uh, and then encourage them down the oc health uh, doctor route till you can get a proper diagnosis uh, and therefore make an assessment as to what your next steps may be um, and and you know uh, often as kate said uh, and as laura said as well that doesn't mean they're going to lose their license you know there's this fundamental fear that oh i've got diabetes i can't drive anymore well that's not strictly true um, uh, often you can still continue to drive unless you're on insulin and even then once you've got a balanced record for a period of about three months um, and, and you can prove that then uh, you will be giving your license back but it does require much more monitoring going forwards and that for you the employer should also give you peace of mind and you can take part and assist in that process so but, you know, there's a lot of positives. But here we are talking about diabetes. There are other conditions which may show similar symptoms uh, that are also going to compromise somebody's safety in driving. Sleep apnea is be, being a classic, but there's lots of others, you know, early onset dementia. There may be conditions involving uh, uh, types of cancers uh, that are, will also show similar symptoms to this. Uh, but will compromise the safety ultimately of the driving um, and, and so that's what's really important to you. I think Jonathan from a regulatory perspective the the operators need to bear in mind what's the reasonable wor most worst case scenario and, and operate on the basis that that could happen because if there are warning signs that you've either not um, paid attention to or not acted on then if the worst does happen you are going to be open to criticism um, and that criticism could be wide ranging in terms of potential prosecutions or other action dependent on the, the outcome of any incident. So it might be that Claire in this case is adamant she wants to carry on driving, she feels fine, she dismisses it. And you might feel that sympathy for her and want to keep her on the road and not have to send her home and pay her while she's sat at home doing nothing. But ultimately, you've got to bear in mind that risk to you as a business and you as individuals within the business if you let her continue and she has an accident or an incident and has been displaying all of these symptoms that you should have picked up on and dealt with. 
Okay, sorry, and I, can I just um, jump in here because it's a very blatant push to some training that actually that we're delivering on Tuesday, but it's called getting your employees back, and we are really talking about the implications of perhaps um, employees who've been off with COVID, but also we will be looking at other health scenarios on that training. Um, Heather, you're going to be delivering it, so I think if you're interested in what we're talking about today, then it really will be worth joining us for that session on Tuesday, and the details are on the website, and they will be in the follow-up email. And um, secondly, I have had a question in. So this one's for you, Kate. Um, what are the implications for people who perhaps don't drive vehicles that are on the road? So forklift trucks and shunting in the yard, because that's a lot of our listeners. That is very apparent for them. So how does the reporting implications work? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And, and there isn't really a definitive answer. So at the moment, uh, DVLA regulations obviously only apply on roads. So when we come off roads, um, there is no... And I will check to Laura as well for the regulations, but there's nothing out there that defines that they must continue to test. So with insulin, you test every two hours whilst driving under DVLA regulations, and that's not carried out. It's, the HSE is suggesting it's implied, but actually there's not the same regulatory requirements. So we could have, and I do work in all industries, but we could have someone come to work, they've tested correctly whilst driving, and then spend eight hours behind some other sort of machinery, like a forklift truck or something else, and then not have to test. So I do, we encourage as an organisation for companies to understand this and encourage their employers to continue to do their testing and give them the appropriate time to do that to ensure safety for all in these environments. Almost certainly under the Health and Safety at Work Act Section 2, you have an obligation to ensure a safe working environment. If you know you have an employee who is at risk, um, uh, because of an underlying health condition, then you would have an obligation to put in place a suitable regime. If you marry your regime with a DVLA type regime, in other words, a two hour testing regime that you monitor as the employer, uh, then you would probably be meeting a satisfactory appropriate steps or reasonable steps to take as an employer. If you don't, if you leave it to the employee to manage it themselves and they're still carrying out a risky activity and also putting their own health at risk, um, then you will still be held accountable. Uh, and and uh, the Health and Safety at Work Act and the transport sector are starting to come very closely entwined, as Laura mentioned earlier, and as she quite rightly said, I've mentioned many times now, um, the health and safety executive are really interested in transport now, second biggest injurer or killer uh, uh, in, in the UK after agriculture. So it's extremely important that when you're looking at your non-driving workforce, if you've got people who have the condition uh, and you feel that you need to help support that, work because, for example, they're driving dangerous pieces of equipment or they're putting themselves or others at risk, then look to adopt a system very similar to that expected of them under the DBLA uh, uh, legislation. Okay, and a question has actually come in. So if a driver is informed by occupational health that they should report a condition to the DBLA, but they choose not to, where does the operator stand? Right, well, uh, do you know, this is a, I'm, I'm often asked this question. I'm also often asked, should a driver, should an operator report the driver to the traffic commissioner? Okay, first of all, you can't report them to the traffic commissioner. The traffic commissioner doesn't have the jurisdiction to look at health. 
Um, that is the DVLA's jurisdiction, and you would be in breach of GDPR if you started to tell another regulatory body of a, of a condition that isn't relevant to them. So be very careful about what you would write to the uh, Traffic Commission about when it comes to health conditions. The second, and, and actually to answer the question, so you have an obligation under um, uh, sorry, the driver has an obligation because his doctor's told him that he must inform the DVLA. If you are aware that the driver has not informed the DVLA, then I think it would be incumbent upon you to insist they inform it and seek evidence thereby. If they refuse, then I think that would be uh, grounds for suspension and potential disciplinary uh, action. Uh, would you agree with that, Heather? Yeah, um, and we've dealt with cases where employees have been dismissed um, for refusing or failing to notify DBLA when our rock health are telling us um, that they should and that in the meantime they shouldn't drive because until you until you make that notification and you get they get the response back from DBLA, you're kind of in uh, limbo land. Um, so if they're refusing to do it, um, then yes, potentially dismissal. I suppose also if you make the driver aware that they risk a potential £1,000 fine for failing to notify, that might focus their minds slightly as well. Yeah, I think um, in the end, uh, encouragement will normally get them to comply. Um, and uh, if, if it doesn't, you, you certainly couldn't let them drive. No. You know, So it's going to cost you a lot of money if you don't act on that. If you try and notify the DVLA, they won't take the notification. Uh, they're not interested in other third parties notifying them of health conditions. Uh, they literally say, uh, we're not interested. You've got to get the employee or the driver or the person concerned to notify. Doctors can notify. They're extremely reluctant to do it because of their confidentiality relationship with the um, patient. However, they did change the guidance, I think, in 2018, which was quite a long time after um, uh, the Glasgow bin lorry accident, which triggered the review. But they have changed the guidance to doctors on this from a relatively short, punchy piece of guidance to a huge document. Um, but I don't know whether doctors have changed their approach to this. Some are willing to, some aren't. Um, but uh, in any event, I think you can push your driver into it or get rid of them. Uh, one or the other, ultimately, uh, using blatant language rather than the legal explanation given by Heather. Okay, so let's look at the third. Uh, I'll, I'll whiz on, but also another question is coming, which actually is really interesting. How can a transport manager or operator know if the DVLA has been told about a driver's medical issue? They can't unless it's on the license. Some medical issues, like glasses, for example, uh, go on the license. Other medical issues don't. But you should have in your terms and conditions of contract the obligation to tell you. And furthermore, uh, the annual health uh, questionnaire, which I would recommend uh, annually, uh, is, uh, is another opportunity for the driver to tell you. If they don't tell you, then they're hiding something from you. They're in breach of the terms and conditions of contract. That's another reason to take serious disciplinary action against an individual. So there's lots of ways in which you can compel them, uh, but encouragement as well can often make a difference. The biggest fear um, of drivers is that they're going to lose their job. And um, actually that, that, that came out of the German wings analysis for the Andreas Lubitz uh, accident where he flew, suffering from psychosis, flew to a mountain, killing everybody on board. And they, they, 
the analysis of that was that he feared losing his job. And that is directly transferable to drivers. They fear losing their role. Now, often they're not going to lose their role and they need to understand that the implications are not the worst case scenario for most of them. And if they are, if you're a large employer, you may well have to find, or even a medium-sized employer, you may well have to find alternative employment for them. So they may still be able to stay within the workforce, just not doing the same job. Um, so uh, it's, it's often about communication and conversation rather than just telling them and ordering them to do things. But ultimately, you might have to do just that, tell them what they have to do and expect them to do it and expect evidence of it and suspend them until they've done it. Okay, third scenario. John works for a local authority as a refuse collector. He's been doing it for 15 years and normally drives the RCV, refuse collection vehicle, for those of you not in the, uh, uh, not in the waste sector. Um, you've heard on the grapevine that he was recently, uh, sorry, he's recently been diagnosed with a serious illness, but he hasn't said anything to you and you don't know what the illness is. Okay, Heather, what's, what's going to happen here? Uh, well, first of all, you can't ignore it. Um, you may have heard on the grapevine, but you're aware that there's a, potentially a problem. Um, so, again, like we said with the other scenarios, the first thing is, opening that um, line of communication with um, John and having a conversation with him um, to say that this has come to your attention um, and that you'd like to um, him to, dis you know, is there anything that he needs to disclose to you about his health um, or otherwise? Um, the difficulty that you've got is that John may just say, no, it's rumours or I don't know where that's come from, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, we can't necessarily just rely on that. Um, so what I would usually say is um, we ask for access for it to his medical records um, because if John's got nothing to hide, he will happily allow you to check that out. Um, if he refuses consent, that's a red flag to me because he, there's something that he doesn't want you to know. Um, and I usually say that in any health scenario where we're asking for consent to, for, to access medical records, if they refuse, there's, there's usually a reason, a reason why, and that's because they don't want you to find something out. Um, so in the meantime, um, whilst you're going through that process, depending um, on what John has or hasn't told you or disclosed to you as part of those conversations, you might want to stand them down from driving um, just to be on the safe side. Again, that will usually be on pay, but if you have got alternative non-driving duties um, that they can be doing in the yard, then that's something that's open to you. Um, but the main takeaway is to act on it, don't ignore it. Um, by um, just by coincidence, when we've been discussing these scenarios this week, I have dealt with two separate queries um, where employers have got new starters um, and their previous employer has contacted them to say, how come that driver's working for you now? Um, because they've had a health problem only a few weeks ago whilst they were employed by us. Um, again, it's not something that you can ignore. You have to act on that and investigate. And if that means suspending the driver um, whilst you do so, then that's what you need to do. That beautifully brings me into my surprise question for you, Heather. She knows my surprise questions. I don't like your surprise questions. I try and 
answer the question before you get to asking it. Okay, well, you've had a good go. You've had a good go. Just, but let's just assume this particular driver, you start trying to talk to him, and then he hands his notice in leaves and goes to speak and goes to work for another operator. That operator asks you for a reference, which you should all do, always take references. That's one of the big issues coming out of the Glasgow Bidmore incident. But they ask you for a reference. Everybody knows that you can give a very basic reference, um, and that's your company policy. Have you got any obligations here? Um, I would say, um, providing you give a factual reference and you're not disclosing anything that's potentially sensitive personal data, it could possibly be open to you to say he left while we were investigating a potential health issue um, there are exemptions under um, GDPR that I won't go into but there is potentially um, exemptions that you can rely on to disclose that information um, in those scenarios. So hopefully tipping off the, uh, uh, the, the future employer. Yeah. Um, often employers will um, ring up and try and have a direct conversation with the previous manager just to say, you know, so-and-so has applied for a job, is there anything I need to know? You're not strictly allowed to tell them anything, are you? Or are you? Sorry, sir. <laughs> so the new employer rings you up, you're, yeah. the, you're the, the old boss, if you like, yeah. and says, look, I've seen the reference, it doesn't tell me anything, there's anything, you know, I need to know. Um. You're not obliged to tell them anything, um, but usually a conversation over the phone that's not recorded and documented isn't going to do any harm. Yeah. So, um, and, and we, I think in all businesses, uh, those sorts of conversations are taking place at some point or another. But remember, you can't defame people, you can't lie about people, and you can't breach their confidential medical uh, status. So be extremely careful when talking about people. Uh, who've left, the need to change the, the reference obligations, in my opinion, to uh, to allow companies to share genuine concerns, and uh, uh, and therefore maybe the Glasgow Bin Lottery accident would have been avoided. Um, but there you go. Okay, well we've done surprisingly well time-wise. Um, we are with one minute to go, or thereabouts, one and a half minutes to go, and we've got quite a bit of training coming up. We're desperate for you to book on either the 27th, 28th or 29th of June training because we've got a target that we are unbelievably close to achieving. Um, uh, and uh, in any event, the tachograph ch uh, rule change enforcement regime that's in place has attracted a lot of attention. It is being enforced. If you're sitting there scratching your head thinking, I don't know anything about that, then genuinely join Monday's <laughs> yeah. training because it's huge. It is really onerous on you. And if you don't know anything about it and you think you can just ignore it, you definitely can't. And you're going to be in a mess sooner rather than later if you do ignore it. And actually, Dylan, on that one, I've had a call this morning of an investigation that DVSA have currently undertaking an operator that relates entirely to breaches of that obligation to record absolutely everything on your tachograph 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I've got a PI in a week's time on the same point. Yeah, so they're really actively um, focusing on this particular area. And if you are, 
if you aren't aware of the detail of the changes, you do need to join us. Um, we've, we've literally trained thousands of people so far since March on this. Yes, a question has come in. Are these all online training? They are, but it's a live training. It's like a webinar today. So they're at designated times and um, a link will be coming out in the follow up email to you if you wanted to book on any of the courses. And they are interactive as well. Um, uh, the perennial topic of defect reporting uh, and, and our up-to-date take on it is on the 29th. You've already heard about getting your employees back. And this is a real problem that we're dealing with literally day and day out. Employees who are reluctant to return to work because they're on long-term sick or they're just trying to find ways of avoiding returning to the workplace. You can get them back. You can force them to come back or you can do something about it. But you need to learn how to do that. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, hang on a minute, I'm a transport manager. This is HR. Fine. Please speak to your HR and encourage them to actually join this training. It will help you uh, a lot with things like your driver shortage, employee shortage, unless you're thinking we don't really want them back. But even then, <laughs> we might be able to help with that as well, might we, Heather? We're quite good at that, too. Um, and then there's back under the bonnet, um, just looking at some of the up-to-date issues with regard to the maintenance regimes, what's expected, um, what you should be considering, what your system should look like. And I'm dealing with an operator at the moment who um, I personally think has got quite good basic systems. They're just about five years out of date, but that's a big shift in the speed with which maintenance is moving. So please feel free to uh, join that training as well. Uh, and that will help us massively towards our target. And then our training goes on into July with our ever more popular two-day transport manager refresher training, bridge strikes, which have been hugely popular training and hugely popular amongst drivers hitting bridges, which means that Laura and I are, uh, and the rest of the team actually are endlessly dealing with bridge strike cases. And then of course, we keep going with our OLAP uh, for senior managers who are not transport managers and of course uh, the transport manager rule train for those people who can't get on Mondays is coming back again on the 21st of July and keeps rolling on. Okay can I just say a special thank you Kate that was really interesting and I think will be really helpful to the listeners and it's something that everybody's aware of but perhaps we all know a lot more about now which should help us and your website and your organisation will help any organisation that wishes to seek further assistance. Okay. Thank you, Laura, once again. Thank you, Heather, once again. I can see that uh, the voice, as I shall now call her, is eager to say <laughs> yeah, something I else. Yeah, Mr. Jonathan. So, yes, if you'd like to see us in person, we are at the Road Transport Expo Thursday, Friday, and Saturday next week. In fact, Jonathan, you're doing a whistle stop tour on bridge strikes, um, which is free talk. So, uh, if, if you'd like you know, to see us, if you'd like to see us in person and uh, not just behind a the screen, then please do come see us in Warwickshire. All right, thank you very much for listening. We've gone two minutes over as usual, and we will see you next time. Have a lovely weekend. Hopefully, the weather will be good. And uh, see you in a fortnight.